you treat people regardless of what level they're at, what culture they are, what age they are, you treat people exactly the same. And it's interesting, we have uh, children in our, our lives now that have become adults. And the coolest thing about you, Monique, is that you never treated us like a child. You always talked to us like we were an adult. Because at the end of the day, everybody's fighting for the same thing. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Monique Nork. Monique is the vice president and worldwide head of alliances at HP. She has extensive experience in shaping and negotiating complex deals, leading change and transformation initiatives, and connecting and influencing multiple functions and levels of an organization. In her previous role, Monique was the Vice President of Operations and Merger and Acquisition Integrations at Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, where she led the integration of the $3 billion Aruba Network Acquisition. I have collaborated and worked with Monique when she took her current role and found her to be witty and smart with a unique ability to cut through the noise and quickly simplify large and complex issues into actionable and measurable activities that are data-guided and outcome-driven. Monique, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Aviv. I'm excited to be here. We finally get to bring our dialogue to uh, the podcast space. So how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, You know, new jobs. I'm 18 months in the role at the moment and finally feel like I'm starting to get my feet under me. And we're in the midst of challenges on a day-to-day basis, and it just keeps you going day after day. So let's dive right in, and, and let me ask you on both sides of the equation, what are the kind of challenges that you are working on at this time? And also, what do you enjoy most about your work? Well, let's start with what I enjoy the most. I think that that's the best part. You know, I'm in a unique role. Um, alliances and procurement are unique in the sense that you get to meet and foster and maintain relationships that can last decades. In this role, your your guiding principles are really about forging relationships between two companies to make sure that you can get the best deals at all times. Sometimes those deals are around pricing. Sometimes those deals are strategies. And sometimes those deals are about partnership. And so the unique thing for me is, you know, doing what I do best, which is going out and talking to strangers and trying to bring together a win-win situation and having fun while we're doing it. And the unique part about being in the technology world is that every widget that goes into a box not only makes a computer, but makes a car, makes a TV, makes a speaker. And so the dynamics are you get exposed to so many different technologies in what we do and get to meet so many unique people that it's just exciting. 
you're saying that it's all about relationships. So, so what are your secrets or your recipe for building successful collaborative relationships? Sometimes in situations that naturally would be adversarial, what is it you do? What are some of the key practices that you apply to build those uh, effective relationships? Well, there's a lot of, in what you just said there. So effective, collaborative, successful. Yes. Not all relationships are successful. Sometimes there's chemistry that just doesn't allow that to happen. And you have to be able to say, you know what? It wasn't meant to be. And then there are many, many relationships that are based on, you know, a win. Some are based on collaboration. And the definition of success can be what you're trying to solve for at that particular time. But overall, no matter what you do, what my mandate is or my personal goal is that whatever interaction you have with a person, if you can achieve a win-win where everybody walks away and is happy with the outcome, you may not always get what you want, but people are pleased with the outcome. And at the end of the day, you can go and have a cup of coffee and the friendship is still solid, then that's a successful relationship to me. And, you know, I've got lots of examples from the past where, you know, we can have examples where you may not like what people are doing, but you get out of it what you want. And you can still respect that person and get together the next day. So give me an example, if, if you can, so we, we can learn about how, uh, how do you create win-win? What, what is it you do? Because so many people talk about win-win, but not a lot of people are very good in creating those win-win scenarios. So tell me a little more about what is it that you uniquely do? I've seen you work hard to understand the other side and be very clear about what it is that you are trying to achieve. So I know that's in in the the pre-work, but I'm interested what happens when you're in the room with those people. I think when I'm in the room, so first of all, when I get into the room, I try to have done my homework to make sure that I understand what it is that all the stakeholders in the room are trying to get out of the meeting. The unique opportunity I've had in the past is that I've worked with marketing, engineering, finance, all functions of an organization, HR. And when you understand where people are coming from that are in the room, you can put yourself in their shoes to see what it is that they want to see as an outcome. And if you can appreciate it from that person's vantage point, and then look at the problem that you have on the table, if you can take this huge issue that you're trying to resolve, whether it's a negotiation or a problem or an opportunity, is to be able to put it in bite-sized chunks that everybody understands and agrees to what the problem is or the solution that you're trying to solve for, make it personable, and then be able to agree on what the end goal needs to be. Once you get to that, then you can have a meaningful conversation and start to help people navigate where the compromises are and where you want to be able to to have a firm hand in something. Yeah, so so your number one there is understand the the needs and motivations and the outcomes uh, every party is, is driving uh, towards. Number two, reduce or simplify the complexity into rather simpler equation. And number three, be personable and, and communicate those in, in a simple and clear way and then drive to find the, the kind of resolution or solution that, um, 
will produce a win-win for everybody involved. Indeed, indeed. It's a nice synopsis. Tell me about those experiences and what have you learned and how have you managed in those situations to um, catalyze the outcomes that you were uh, trying to achieve, often with only boys around you? That is the story of my life. You know, it's interesting. There's, a, there's an expression that um, if your mouth is moving, you're not listening. And my boss once said that to me. He said it to a room full of people and it resonated. And when I'm in a room full of men, I tend to do a lot less talking these days than I used to do when I was younger. I also was given advice that as a female, if you want a group of men to listen to you, drop the tone of your voice an octave, especially when they're all talking over each other. So when you speak slowly and deliberately, And with the right tone, you can command the room. So I tend to use that as my formula going into most meetings because it just seems to work. And then I always try to have the facts. And my recipe, I hope that people see this as well. My recipe has always been to be data-based. If I have the data, I'm neutral. I don't have to have a strong opinion, even though I might. I can have the data and I can use my influencing skills to drive the agenda based on data. And again, going back to the conversation about relationships, if you know where people are coming from, you can help influence it using the data you have to bring everybody back together again. So even though you're the only woman in the room, you can be a very strong facilitator. You can strong, strongly influence the people at the table. And you can get over any, you know, stage fright you might have being the only woman that's at the table. So is it, is it normal? I don't know what normal is anymore. A colleague of mine the other day said to me, we need more women on the team, Monique. And I said, well, what made you say that? And he said, because you were the only woman in the room. And I said, well, that's nice of you to notice. And he said, no, I think we need to hire more women. Not everybody shares your opinion. And how you express yourself becomes very important in the business world so that you're seen as a woman, seen as a strong, competent woman, and not somebody who's trying to fight every fight. I have observed you to, that one of the strengths you bring to the table is, is you, you, you're very fast in the moment to read the room, to interpret what's going on around you, and, and to... Uh, with wit and humor, disarm situations. Uh, do you agree with my observation, number one? And number two, I'm interested if you're able to trace this skill. This is one of the skills or competencies that, that is most difficult. To, to I don't know that you can actually coach somebody into that kind of uh, natural competence. So I wonder if you're able to trace when and where in your life Uh, you found that gift and, and, and whether you consciously cultivated it. Yes, I agree that um, that definitely describes me. I can walk into a room, I can assess it very quickly, and I can listen to what's going on, and I can make conclusions very quickly. And, and I tend to get alignment with everybody in the room. That has, that has hindered me as well as helped me in my career. And I think as I've, I've matured in my career, I've learned how to use that skill better 
Whereas at the beginning of my career, I would have been in the room breaking glass, trying to get everybody to see my way because I'd already figured out what the answer was, but I hadn't taken people on the journey. As I've matured and learned from many, many people, not least of all yourself, Aviv, um, with the coaching that I've received from you, is sometimes you need to slow down and take it all in. And even if you've already figured it out, pretend that you have no idea that you figured it out and ask questions, ask lots and lots of questions. The more engagement you can get from people at the table, the better the decision will be in the end anyway, because people will be bought off on it. So slowing down, taking people on the journey, being conscious of how you're engaging with people and using data to tell the story can be very compelling. So, and, and inside what you're describing, there is also in, in, implicitly the, the self-awareness, the self-insight that you don't have to prove every minute uh, of every meeting that you're the smartest person in the room. It, it, it's actually very um, a smart move to allow and facilitate other people to, to have the, the moment in, in the sun, so to speak, uh, so that they articulate the solution that you are perhaps already um, have in mind before, but when they articulate and bring forward those solutions, then they are much more commitment, c- committed to, to those outcomes. Yeah, you know, yes, yes. All of what you just said, the lucky thing that I've had in my career and my personal relationships is most of the people I know are smarter than me. And my skill isn't about being the smartest person in the room. It's about bringing all of the smart people together to have a common theme. And that's how you get negotiations done. And that's how you get projects implemented. It's about everybody being on the same page and not having different agendas. So luckily, you know, and again, as, as you go through your career and you advance in different levels, where con- content is most important when you start off in your career, relationships and how you manage those relationships become much, much more important the longer you're in your career and the higher you go. So you have to balance the content and being the smartest person in the room versus making sure that those relationships are preserved at all costs because that's how you ultimately get things done. So so let's stretch to the beginning of your journey. What inspired you when you were growing up? What did you imagine for yourself uh, earlier on in life? You know, I always, always wanted to be a lawyer and work in, in nonprofit philanthropic areas. That was always my passion growing up. I was always, I always wanted to protect the underdog. I still do. Um, I always wanted to be involved in things that would have social awareness and social impact. But having said that, all the skill sets that I had going through school and what I developed going through university to go to law school and to go to um, grad school was all the, the things I have described to you already. You know, the love of being around people, the fact that I do like to solve problems, the fact that I like different people and different problems. I like the fact that you can bring diversity into a room and make an even more important impact on the world. I think it's great. I think it's great. And I try to cultivate that my entire life. Where did you go to school and uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was great. I'm Canadian. Canadian. Um, I grew up in Canada and went to high school in Canada, in Toronto, where the winters were bitter and the summers were beautiful. 
where we have four seasons a year and you spent most of your time outdoors. And I grew up in an environment where small communities where you were taught to work ethic. If it snowed and your driveway was cleaned, your parents would send you to the next door neighbor who wasn't able to do it and they kept you busy. And you were supposed to be busy and you were supposed to be outside and you were supposed to be part of the family. We were also taught that team sports were a big part of our culture so that you learn how to play with others nicely and you learn to love the outdoors, all of which I continue to do today. And from there, I went to university, York University in Toronto, where I studied international studies and political science, and then went on to do a graduate degree in Amsterdam in economics. And so what happened after your time in Amsterdam? Fortunately, I was invited to go to China as a foreign expert at the university in Shanghai and spent a year there. What year was that? Oh, my God. Um, I'm interested because obviously the, the, the China evolution story over the last 40 years is, is, is fascinating. So what, I'm curious, when was that time? Like, that you... It was 1992, 93, going back okay. now. And I remember that Shanghai had dirt roads. There were more bicycles on the road than there were cars. You needed to learn how to speak the local language. In that case, it was Shanghainese, which is a derivative of, of Mandarin. In order to be able to go to the market and buy your rice and your food and your fruit. And um, taxis were the, the majority of cars on the road at the time. Now, if you travel to China today... It's mind-boggling. People are driving McLarens and Ferraris and Audis and, and it's bumper-to-bumper cars and there's highways everywhere. And where you used to just be able to ride your bicycle in 15 minutes to go from the bun to your, your room at the university, now it could take you three hours due to the traffic. It, it's phenomenal, the change in the world. And that early experience in, in China at that time meant what for you? How, how did you shape your perspective? How did that shape your perspective of, of the world and, and of China? Oh, there's so many good stories, so many great memories from those days. You know, I traveled all around the country with whatever Mandarin that I had and um, met the most phenomenal people from all over the world. People were there to explore. And we used to laugh when we'd be traveling, you know, you'd be on the Great Wall walking up and down the Great Wall of China outside of Beijing, and um, somebody would refuse to say hello to you. And there was me saying hello to everybody. Um, it was just a phenomenal time. You know, you, you got to meet every walk of life, people who, people who, you know, had retired and had loads of money and were traveling first class and staying at fancy hotels, to the backpacker who was living on $10 a day and staying in hostels or sleeping in bus stations in order to be able to get to the next city and explore. When you put all those people together and you hear their stories, all it did was give me more, more desire to travel to more parts of the world. Mm. And I've never stopped. And people often say, you move from London to Houston. You know, you gave up your seasons. You gave up the temperature. Well, there's great things about Houston, too. And um, Houston has six months of the year that's beautiful and it has access to just about anything you could possibly imagine. 20 years ago when we moved here, it didn't have a lot from an international 
environmental or cultural aspect, except for oil companies. And today, it's one of the leading cities in the world for the arts, for music, for the ballet. And it's a major hub where, you know, me with the travel bug, I can still go anywhere I want in this country in three and a half to five hours. And I can be in Europe in nine. It's a lot going for it. Indeed. As you come through your, the early stages of, of your career, at what point do you say to yourself, I think I know what my core competency is. I think I know where and how uh, I can excel. I'm asking this because for this is probably the, the, one of the biggest conundrums for people earlier in their career. They, they, people look to find where can I excel? Where can I make a difference? So would you say that occurred and you found that, that uh, sweet spot for you during that time in London with the consulting firm or was it something else where, where you were able to find your, your sweet spot? You know, I, as you say that, there's a story that comes to mind. I remember as part of this consulting, you had to learn how to deliver the training. And I remember giving a project management training class and it was a witty group of people. And as much as they threw it out, I was able to throw it back. And at the end of these pro- these three five-day workshops, you would have feedback written on you. And I remember seeing the word unflappable. <laughs> and I remember thinking, <laughs> that's interesting. And I am. I'm quite unflappable. And it's a skill that I I never knew what the word meant at the time. And I had to look it up. And and it's today, I'd say it still resonates. I don't mind being thrown in any environment and taking it all in, seeing the goodness in anything that's there, trying to remain as neutral as possible and have a good time while I'm there. So what is it? What do you, is it a skill? Is it, is it an aptitude? Is it, uh, is it something that's uh, based in, in a very healthy self view self-esteem where, where you bring to the table confidence, which of the above or all of the above? I think it's all of the above. But I think part of it is, you know, sense of humor is, is a cult. It's cultivated. It's not, not everybody has a wicked sense of humor. Lots of people find things funny, but a sense of humor is different. And self-deprecation is something that I, I thrive in. And sarcasm I've thrived in. Now I've had to I've had to tone that down a little bit um, culturally because North America, especially Texas, isn't isn't as sarcastic as growing up in Canada or the UK. So you've I've had to learn to adapt. Sometimes better than others. The sarcasm and the wittiness to me can make any bad situation tolerable. Hmm. And I find that you can use humor as part of your toolkit. As a, as a leader and remind people that at the end of the day, it's a job and we're all here together, but we, we should be having a good time doing it. So you then relocate to Houston and, and how do you pick up your career, your professional career after that relocation? Well, you know, fortunately, um, the company I was with transferred me to the U.S. So I had that to fall back on. Um, I transitioned out of that into the oil and gas sector when I found myself on a plane every every Sunday afternoon and not getting home till Friday night. By the time you get home, you're absolutely shattered and all you do is spend your weekend doing laundry, 
doing cursory visits with family and friends, and then you find yourself back on the plane again. And that became very exhausting very quickly and wasn't the way I wanted to live my life. You know, to me, being home, being with your family and friends to me is very important. It gives me balance. And these core people in my life also keep me very grounded. They're the people that are able to remind me who I am and take the mickey out of me and we can laugh. And that's who I've become. And that's who I want to be is the person that is around these people. That's beautiful. So then what happens then career-wise? What's the next step after that? Well, you know, again, I was very lucky. Um, went into the oil and gas sector for a short stint. And then Compaq, believe it or not, um, this is going back 2000. Um, I got interviewed in 1990, December 1999 and started January 1st to January 3rd or 4th, whatever it was in 2000. And I've been here ever since. I went to Compaq, then Compaq merged with HP. HP then split to HP and HPE where I went with HPE. And now I've transitioned back over to the HP side of the house. And it has been a fantastic run. The people that I work with here, the reason I'm here is because of the people I work with. Like I said before, some of the smartest people I know are the people I sit across the table from. And they come at it from their own vantage points, whether it's engineering or marketing or sales or supply chain. Everybody has a contribution and you're all a single team and we make great products. Give me an example of a story that, that represents your capacity to convert setback and challenge into a learning and, and growth experience. Um, one where you won't compromise the, the identity of other people, uh, but still will, will share the, the way you do this, the way you embrace a challenge and convert it to a positive learning experience? I think I mentioned it at the beginning, that when it comes to people, chemistry is really important. And I worked on a project not too long ago, where myself and the leader of this organization had a phenomenal chemistry. There was just a bond out the door. And then I found myself as a middleman between two sets of leaders where I was supposed to navigate the direction that both, both of these individuals wanted to go in order to make a successful business. That was extremely challenging in the sense that one side of the table was all about collaboration and finding common good and making sure that we had a successful business. The other one was all about, I want to win. And I'm going to win at all costs and I'm not going to compromise on any of my values and what I believe an organization should look like. And that became quite a unique challenge to find yourself in. One, in the fact that you're sitting between two disparate groups of people, neither of one who really wants to compromise. And yet, you know, you need to come to some sort of resolution in order to be able to bridge the two together so that the 3,000, 4,000 people behind them we're all going to be led in the same direction. And that project lasted a couple of years. And um, in the end, I think we, we ended up implementing a very successful organization. Today, they're still very successful in making money. But the lessons out of that, 
is a don't ever get yourself between two big bosses because it's a difficult road to hoe. Yes. And, <laughs> and it's not a place that's fun, right? It's stressful because at the end of the day, you're not the boss. You're the person facilitating the change. And you're the owner of the project, not the owner of a lot of the decisions, even though you may be influencing. And so the key here is do what you can to make sure that there's clarity in who's actually making the decisions from the beginning. And sometimes people don't want to do that because they don't want to disrupt the flow, whether it's creative flow or ego or you know content expertise. You need to be able to keep have that competing parallel lines, but it can be exhausting. It can be exhausting and you have to be very careful because it can challenge you in ways that you didn't know you have to be challenged. So as you go through these experiences and and you move along your career trajectory, you you get to manage uh, larger and larger teams. How would you describe your leadership style and your leadership philosophy and, and what shaped that approach uh, and how you approach leadership? I have, uh, I had a great, one of my first VPs at Compaq, I will never forget. And I remember being on a business trip to Asia and I get on board the plane and he's three rows behind me and I'm in coach and he's in coach. And I said, oh, I thought that when you're a VP, you get to travel business class. And he looks at me and he goes, Monique, you have to lead by example. If you're on the plane in, in coach, I'm on the plane in coach. And those words have resonated with me my entire career. Because it showed me that there's equality in all people. And if you don't lead by example, how do you expect people to become what it is that you're trying to exemplify? Now, it means different things to different people. But the other day, we were actually having a team meeting. I, w- I had a group of, I think there was about 20 people. And we were just having a happy hour just to let, let some steam off with all the pressure that we have at the moment. And one of the guys on the team said to me, you know, Monique, what I like about you is you're approachable. You may not be able to get with me when I have a question that minute, but you will always get back to me at the end of the day. And I thought, okay, that's, that's, that's great because I want to be open door and I want to be approachable and I want people to know that they can come to me and ask any question at any time. And that if I don't know the answer, we'll find out together how to get the answer. But also if there's any concerns that they don't ever have to feel fear that they can come and know that it's a safe space to be managed from. So that's one thing. And the other thing I think that's that's good is somebody else said to me, Monique, you don't see differences in people. You treat people regardless of what level they're at, what culture they are, what age they are. You treat people exactly the same. And it's interesting. We have uh, children in our, our lives now that have become adults. And they say to me, the coolest thing about you, Monique, is that you never treated us like a child. You always talked to us like we were an adult. Because at the end of the day, everybody's fighting for the same thing. It's whether, you're, it's whether you want that promotion or whether you want to be able to stay at home with your children, if you want to be able to bre- breastfeed on a train. There's all, kinds of, there's all kinds of asks out there. And all of them are reasonable within the context of what you're talking about. 
the key is balance and understanding that not everybody might be there yet. And how do you take them on the journey? We are operating right now and living through a very polarized culture and very polarizing time. And in, on so many different topics, the middle has almost disappeared. And largely, the, the mechanics of social media is driving conversations to the lowest common denominator and often to the fastest lack of common denominator where people are on two sides of the issue and you actually get um, a validated and, and you get the currency of social media by being more extreme on whatever side of the issue you are because then you, that, that's where you will get uh, more views and more likes and, and so on. And in some way, uh, I have to admit that the corporate space, the corporate environment offers a modus operandi where you can play safe, but it, it's just still there under the surface and, until such moment as, as you scratch it. What I'm observing right now is that many people are not sure how to deal with cultural issues, so they, they don't, number one. Number two, the space we have moved into is one where small and medium and large issues are being criticized often in the same way and will often suffer the same kind of consequences and and penalties and often will cost people everything. So it it is a very complex time to to navigate and and, and operate in in this uh, cultural environment. Indeed. Well, I I admit it. I have yet to sign up for any social media other than LinkedIn. And it's a a conscious decision. It it has always been a conscious decision. I don't feel the need to have my picture posted up there. I don't feel the need to have to be liked on a message. But that's not to say that, that it's right for everybody. I think social media has huge huge influence and benefit if used wisely. I think many people get a lot of satisfaction out of it. I think people overuse it. I don't see the need personally um, for all the media that people have in their lives. That's not to say that there's not a lot of value in it. Um, It has become a social, it's been become, let's put it this way, it's become a communication vehicle, especially for the young people. But what's amazing to me is even the young people I know in my lives, most of them are pulling away from social media and actually picking up the phone and calling people again. Apps like WhatsApp are becoming much more prevalent where people will text each other and then they'll call each other or um, FaceTime. People have to use it with consciousness. And I think that's where for a while there we forgot about that. And I also think people need to be aware and cognizant of the fact that not everything that people say, people will appreciate. And just because your opinion is strong doesn't mean that your opinion is shared by everybody. And this comes back to my comment about balance. The thing I find saddest about social media at the moment is that when I was growing up, um, we couldn't afford to pay. If we had a camera, we couldn't afford normally to get the film to put in the camera, let alone the processing of the camera of the film. And so we didn't have much of a record of our youth. Nowadays, everything's captured. And once it's captured and on paper or in media, it's there forever. And that's something to always remain cognizant of is 
when you do something like that, will you be ashamed in the morning or will you be delighted in the morning? And again, that's personal choice. Indeed. What do you do to balance the intensity of your job in, in these recent years? I know one of the things you, you do is you travel a lot. So, But, but uh, tell me a little more about that. And, and I'm actually interested in some of the exotic places you've been to recently. Um, but talk to me first about why travel is so important and something you, you refuse to give up and, and continue to uh, make part of your life. Oh, travel. I love to travel. Travel to me, to exotic places or even down the street. The breadth of fresh air that it brings and it gets you out of your current environment to give you new perspectives at any time of the day. So for me, you know, just going down to the beach in Galveston or getting on a plane to go back and see my parents, to me, that it's, it's a luxury. It's a pure luxury. So that's just the basics. And then there's the then there's the excitement of the cultural experience, the fact there's a different language, the fact that you find yourself in a culture where you don't know how to speak the language, but you use a smile and hand gestures and laughter in order to be able to find your directions or find something to eat or navigate a menu or even where the bathroom is. Those just live with you. I, to me, that's exciting. It's seeing other people I mean, there's nothing better than a city break when you sit in a cafe with a book and you people watch for a couple of hours, you know, how people walk their children down the road or what they're wearing. You know, you, you, you go to London these days, you know, you see every walk of life, every culture in the world is at your fingertips. And all you have to do is open your eyes and look out there and everybody is going shopping or buying groceries or going to dinner and go to a movie or going to the local, you know, Tower Bridge or seeing the Sphinx in, in Cairo. There's all kinds of stuff always being, it's taxing your senses and it's taxing you from an intellectual perspective and it's challenging you because you don't know what you're doing from one minute to the next. And the great thing with my husband and I, when we travel, with the exception of some some of our travel, like our current plans to go to Patagonia, where we have to have a booking for longer periods of time. But when my husband and I did a trip to Vietnam a few years ago, we booked a hotel when we landed for two nights. And we booked the hotel leaving the country a month later for two nights. Everything in between was whatever was what we wanted to do that particular day. Or somebody said, have you done this? And we'd say, hmm, that sounds interesting. And you either get a rickshaw or you get a boat or you take the train and you'd go to where that was. There's a sense of freedom that comes with that when you're not bogged down with schedule and you're not bogged down with telephone calls or emails and you can appreciate the beauty around you. That to me is just a wonderful experience. Mm. If you were to lose all that you know and mm -hmm. only keep one or two ideas, or one or two capabilities, or one or two practices, what would you keep? The word compassion was the first thing that came into my mind. Compassion and humor. Compassion and humor. Because compassion and humor will allow you to land anywhere in the world and make a conversation and find your way. Indeed. Indeed. That's a nice way to put it. Monique, uh, this, uh, this was a rich uh, exploration with you through some of your professional and, and personal experiences. 
as we bring this to lending. What parting wisdom do you uh, want to offer to people listening to Create New Futures? Be yourself and enjoy what you're doing. Because life is too short. That's a, that's a powerful brief. And for many people, it's a difficult brief. It, it's, a, it's an interesting comment because for many people, they live with a sense that I am not enough. And, and that sense of inadequacy and, and insecurity uh, is, is with them. But your message is now, you are enough. Be yourself and find the strength in there. And let that uh, be the, the way you, you navigate in the world. Absolutely. And set realistic expectations. I think we all put so much pressure on ourselves for these artificial expe- expectations that we set that sometimes the difference is really just a reality check. Mm. Beautiful message. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, work to build mutually beneficial relationships. As Monique pointed out, at work and in life, it is about the people you are with and the relationships you cultivate. Understand what are the needs and the objectives of the people involved, and then simplify the complex to help them find solutions that will meet these needs. Make it personable and help people navigate through their alternatives as you strive to create a win-win. Second, know your facts. Ground yourself in data so that the conversation you develop is tailored to address the real issues in ways that can neutralize emotions and reactivity and bring the focus to what matters. Work to create data-driven solutions and the outcomes that will indeed make a difference. Third, lead by example. There is quality in all people. Become what you hope to create and be approachable to those that seek you out. And inside it all, be yourself and enjoy what you do. Life is just too precious to not be in touch with who you are and why you are here. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.